What is up, everybody? Happy Monday. Uh, I hope you had a really good weekend, and I hope you're ready to talk killers. I have no idea what it is about serial killers that just gets us all wound up, other than the fact that they're really freaky. But there's something about uh, serial killers serving their sentence that's even more kind of, like, fascinating. Like there's a schadenfreude or something. I, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot about serial killers in prison that we sort of can't get enough of. And tonight, do I have something for you? Uh, the serial killer who, unless you were living under a rock, you know as the happy face killer because he thought it was ad- adorable to sign his taunts to the media and to cops with a happy face. Well, nobody was smiling except uh, the rest of us in his camp when he got caught and jailed. Keith Jesperson. Uh, officially, eight, eight women, long-haul trucker murdered. By his count, well over 100, closing in on 200. And now he's talking to us. He is writing letters to our Laura Engel. She's got a full-on conversation going with this fella. And he's even weighing in on the suspected Long Island serial killer. Because, you know, happy face killer, Long Island, they got so much in common, is that why? We got the letters for you tonight. And speaking of smiling as you kill, there was another fella who was renowned for painting a big old smile on his face while he was murdering victim after victim after victim and then just... Stuffing him down in the cellar, letting him rot till he was caught. John Wayne Gacy. It's like the name synonymous with nightmares, you know? If you want to make a a movie like Saw, that's kind of what you think of as sort of the OG, right? That guy. Uh, It's like serial killer night because tonight, Gacy speaks from the grave. Stuff you've never heard him say before. And um, maybe it's not weird, although I'm still fascinated, but he seems to think, or at least he wants us to think, his victims were responsible for their own deaths. Have a listen to this little nugget. He put the handcuffs on himself. Okay, then I, of course, expounded further on him getting blown, and he didn't like the idea. And then he was scared that he was going to get killed. No, he had it coming. Put the handcuffs on himself and he was scared he was going to get killed. So, you know, what's a guy to do? What's a clown to do? (laughs) Wow. Just wow. And be able to hear this? To be able... His lawyer rolled tape on him while prepping for trial. And those tapes are now being made public. You'll find out how... The guy who's bringing them out into the open is going to talk to us about it tonight. And then I always love to say, you know, when I was a kid, are we there yet? If you're a parent, oh, are we there yet? You hear it so much. But tonight, I really do want to ask you that question. Are we there yet? Are we there where we can predict the crime's going to happen because of AI? And if we're there yet, can we arrest somebody before the crime? Can we convict them? So this is where we at. Are we there yet? You need to be a little bit worried about this stuff, honestly, because it's kind of like tonight we got the 
the real-life minority report. Just because it's possible, is it legal? Might it become legal? I love this. Oh, Tom Cruise. Here's the killer. Here's who's going to be. Let's go get him. So we're going to talk all about that tonight. And if you like true crime, you're going to really like this show because, honestly, we fear them and we loathe them and we certainly want them to get what's coming to them, right? But they fascinate us. There is no getting around it. Serial killers fascinate us. Their names are like etched in our psyche. Stuff in nightmares and blockbuster movies and podcasts and docudramas. John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. Dennis Rader, BTK, for buying, torture, kill. Ted Bundy, son of Sam, Jeffrey Dahmer. I could go on and on. And I think you'd listen. Keith Jesperson, it's another one of them, holds a special place of dishonor in this sorry group. He's better known as the happy face killer, serving multiple life sentences for murdering eight women across six states in the 90s. Kind of easy to do as a long-haul trucker. He preyed mostly on sex workers, sometimes raped them before he strangled them. But he was, of course, also a family man. Oh, they always are, right? Family man, family man. BTK, family man. Frickin' Boy Scout, you know. But um, Keith's marriage didn't last. <laughs> I wonder why. Uh, when he was married, though, he did have two daughters and a son. And one daughter actually said that she had seen her dad strangle a cat with a smile on his face. Weird thing is, that's not how he got his name, Happy Face. That is not where the nickname came from. He got it because he was drawing smiley faces on all those letters that he was taunting the media and the authorities with. But, dum-dum, got him caught, especially after strangling his longtime girlfriend, at which point he confessed to the other deaths too, the ones that police could confirm and lots and lots of others, as many as 160. Today, the happy face killer is exactly where he should be, rotting. Rotting behind bars, wondering if he's a big deal. And he will rot there for the rest of his life at the Oregon State Penitentiary. With all of that free time, though, he's, uh, he got himself a hobby, because one must have one if that's all you do all day. He writes to other suspected serial killers or serial killers, most recently, as we've reported, he has written to Rex Huerman. That's the suspected Long Island serial killer. And News Nation correspondent Laura Engel gained exclusive and extraordinary access to Keith Jesperson, happy face killer. And I want you to hear what he told Laura about Rex Huerman and Huerman's wife, Aza Ellerup, and that whole seven-figure documentary deal that they did. These are the audio interviews conducted, uh, conducted over the phone. Have a listen. When I was arrested, okay, going back to when back to 1995, when I was arrested, I was thrown into a room full of other inmates, and every one of them was going through a process in the, in the court system. And I basically was at school learning what was going to happen next in the court system for me. And nobody told me what was going to happen next. I, I had to stumble along and... Uh, come up with my own conclusions what, was, what I needed to do. Now, granted, my case was, it was unique, the fact that my first murder had two innocent people in prison, and my first agenda was to get those two people released from prison. Now, Rex doesn't have that. Rex has, he's, in, he's, he's picked up for, he's a suspect in the Long Island serial killer case. 
and as it is right now, that's all he is is a suspect. But sooner or later, he's going to go to he's going to get convicted. Now, New York does not have the death penalty, so his options are very limited to what he can and cannot do. Right. See, you, you can't see what his problem is. Is that, like I said, New York does not have the death penalty, so he's going to be convicted. And his only option is to, to determine where he's going to do his time at and how well his time is going to be. Right. That's the only thing I can offer. I, I suggest to him that he uh, solve himself to uh, contact the authorities to make a deal to do his time outside of New York because when he's convicted in New York, now New York's no joke. It's a, it's, it's a bad prison system. I mean, these are tough guys in there. Right. <laughs> uh, he's going to be he's going to be put in uh, uh, solitary confinement or wherever. He's, he's going to be kept away from it from, from from the general population because it'd be like Jeffrey Dahmer being thrown in that hallway and getting beaten to death. They don't want that to happen. Right. But they're not going to stop it if it does. So he, he'll have to, his only his only option in what I explained to him was you have to solve yourself uh, if you're really guilty solve yourself and, and help the authorities to solve who you are and make a deal to do better time somewhere else away from the victims' families you know friends and families that may be incarcerated waiting for him to get to prison. Right. Well, how do you think that that. Uh... How do you think that that advice went over? Do you have any indication how your advice to him went over? Well, you read the letter. You've read the letter that Rex sent me back. Yes. Uh, the very start of the letter was it basically says that I hear you, understand what you're telling me. Um, but the way I look at it, the way I see now, he said one of the things in his letter said he hasn't seen any um, discovery yet which tells me that he's listening to his lawyers and his lawyers are concerned what exactly evidence they have on him. My letter back to him was like, you know damn well what your discovery was going to be because if you're guilty, you know what it's going to be. They've got you. Right. They, they don't arrest people uh, and hoping to find the evidence after they arrest them to convict them. They already have the evidence. Right. So he's going to, you know, he's got to make that decision. And I got a feeling what's going to happen is that he's allowing his lawyers to make that decision for him at this time. I, I, I actually believe it's going to go to full trial. He's never going to stand up and take responsibility for it. Maybe, maybe at the very end, I don't know, but uh, his, his wife divorced him right away, which isn't a good sign. Uh, his, you know, there's a lot of negatives going on in his life right now, and, and I think he's just going to throw himself to the wolf. What did you make of the fact that his wife is making a documentary and is and showed up at court? This is social media. This this is a whole new ball game from when I went to, when I went to court. I mean, now you have social. Everyone everyone wants to talk about crime and and go now. His wife is making. A live now. My daughter got involved with his wife. My daughter Melissa tried to start a GoFundMe page for her, and of course, she's now doing. And now his wife is doing a documentary, getting paid what a million dollars to do a, a, a live TV camera type shot type thing. Yeah. 
uh, it, it's, it's, I know the victim's families are up in, up in arms over this, but until the guy's convicted, they have no stand, nothing to stand on. But right. they, I think, I think it, it, it's a wrong move. I think it's a, a bad move on, on her part, but she's, she's trying to separate herself from him. And so she's trying to make it make a, a living now that he's gone. Right. He, she, she has accepted the fact that he's not coming home. Right. Now that also tells me that maybe, maybe she knows more about the case than she should know. Right. She might be involved in it. I mean, she might be very well. It might have been when they, they hired the hookers to come in. Maybe she was involved in that uh, process and only after the murders happen, all of a sudden it, 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 she gets tied in. Now, from what I understand, that, that uh, hair DNA from, from her had been found on the body. Right. So so that, is, that in itself will bring into question whether or not she was complacent with this or not. What stood out to you in the letter that Rex Huerman wrote you back when you had said, come clean, confess, you'll have a better life, you'll get a job? What stood out to you when he wrote you back? I, I don't think he... You know, it takes a, a good set of balls to step up to the plate and take responsibility for your actions. Um, I did, and I found that when I when I came, came clean and said uh, I was the happy face killer, that I am responsible for these murders and that the, those two people were innocent, and I was going to prove this, I found that the moment I was telling the truth and getting it all done, that I was I, I had uh, a lot of weight taken off my shoulders because now I was just telling the truth. I'm not trying to hide behind it. Uh, I think it takes a, a great amount of strength to cross over into that passage to get away from lying to the public or sitting back on your laurels and letting your lawyers do the talking for you. One known victim of the happy face killer remains unidentified, but she is referred to by a name. They picked Claudia. Don't know why. Um, he was convicted of murdering so-called Claudia 14 years ago. And now with advances in DNA technology, there is a brand new push by the California, by a California uh, district attorney to find out exactly who this Claudia um, really was. Here's what... Um, Keith Jesperson told our Laura Engel about that. Given them everything I could, I've been up front with them ever since I was arrested, and uh, I settled that case in, uh, uh, in 2010. I picked up a 25 years to life doing concurrent with Oregon. Right. So I, I was down there uh, talking to them. In 2000, in December 2009, and and, uh, and then into February, I think it was around February, I was brought back here. But it was all uh, all the upper up. I've given everything I could. Right. So and of course, the DNA. They they also they in 2022, they uh, they solved the identity of, of Patricia Skipple, my fifth victim, and of course. Just this last uh, March, I identified my Florida case as a Susanna, or whatever her last name is, I don't know. Kellenberg. But, uh, that's the one I'm, I'm currently going through court with 
in Florida, and I'll probably pick up another 25 years to do concurrent or consecutive. Right. So you've already yeah. given all the information you can about Claudia. What can you? Oh yeah. What did you tell them about Claudia? Can you share with me? Oh, I, I, she was in with, she was with me for just a few hours. Not much I can really talk about on that. It's just that uh, I didn't uh, I didn't get a name, and that's uh, about the size of. Did she? She didn't have any identify and. She didn't have no, any. She had no purse. She had no purse. No baggage. No ID. No nothing on her. Right. She had a. She had a white top. One minute remaining there. And you guys, did you get into an argument? No, not much of an argument. It was just. It was just. Uh, it's just circumstance on how it went down, and and uh, something I'd rather forget. Something he'd rather forget. Well, yeah, because, you know, when you kill someone, it can't feel great after when you're rotting in prison for life. That whole business about Suzanne, whatever her, whatever her name, whatever, whatever. So that little piece of journalism right there belongs to one uh, Laura Engel, News Nation correspondent, and Laura is with me live now. That was so fascinating. And I know you had a horrible cold and you were struggling through it, but you did such a great job because it's hard talking to a serial killer. It's hard maintaining your composure so as not to be considered by the audience to be complacent about the filthy beast that you're speaking with, but also to draw out of him everything you can. Because isn't that really what we're here for, Laura? We just want to know how is it that these people end up so far away from the flock? That's right. And uh, that's what I was trying to do was just to let him keep talking through my cough. And I apologize for that. Uh, but I just wanted him to talk to me and tell me what he could remember about his victims. But more importantly, the story that we have been covering, uh, you know, what has he been communicating with Rex Hewerman, the Long Island serial killer suspect? We know that he has been trying to get him to confess um, for a while. He told me in some of the letters that I have here that not only did I have that phone call, I have five letters. They are double-sided and they are here. Um, and he describes talking to him and saying, you know, come clean. You'll have a better life if you just confess to all of your crimes and you will go to prison. You will get a job. You will have better food and all of that. So, you know, I, as I was talking to him about why he did that, it turns out, as you mentioned, it's kind of a hobby. He does write to many people from his prison in Oregon, and he reached out to Rex Hurman. Rex Hurman wrote back, and he's trying to get him to confess. And it was a very interesting conversation. And I think one of the things that is so frightening about serial killers, killers in general, but especially serial killers, is just how normal they can sound. Because serial killers are scary, of course, um, but when you think of them, you might think of somebody lurking in the shadows. But these are generally normal looking people that, you know, these women got mm -hmm. into his truck. And uh, for Rex Hurman, if he is guilty, you know, he's an architect living in, working in Manhattan, living in Massapequa on Long Island. And that, that's not what they're supposed to look and sound like. Sure. They're, they're, they're supposed to look like, you know, terrifying, monstrous ogres. And uh, the reason they can ply their trade for so long is because they just... They slink around among us, and there are wolves in, in sheep's clothing. I have to be honest with you, Laura. When I was listening to him talking to you, 
espousing bullshit because the guy is not incarcerated in the New York system, but there he is, the know-it-all about New York. Oh, I know about New York. Yeah, it's a terrible, you don't want to be in New York. It really reminded me of the hubris of Dennis Rader because there's another guy who spoke in court as though the rest of us We're so lucky to be there to listen to him, espouse the knowledge of life. And I'm starting to wonder if that isn't a little piece of all of them. They just all think they're superior to everyone. It is interesting that you compare it to BTK because uh, as we heard that confession of Dennis Rader in court, he was very, he was just very matter of fact. And that is the perspective um, that Keith Jesperson gave us in that call. It was very matter of fact. He was talking to, one of the letters he wrote to me was he wrote it to me like I had killed people, and he's basically giving me the perspective of what he gave to Rex Hewerman in his letter, saying, okay, so, Laura, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be quiet. You're not going to trust the media. Uh, you're going to, you know, if you are guilty, you're going to fess up, and you're going to start to get this better food and a better job. And he wrote to me in this way, and I wanted to show you really quick. Um, you know, remember that part that we heard about Rex Hewerman asking if, uh, Jesperson had butter for his bread. Well, Jesperson sent mm. me the prison menu. Uh, it kind of looks like what you got back in the school days. And also the things that you can buy at the commissary. Look at how big this is. These are all the different things. And yes, in fact, you can get margarine for your butter and your biscuits and your bread. So uh, just a very it's interesting so look into this. Yes. It really, I mean, I'm looking at on your desk. We've got a cameraman who's panning um, over your shoulder and looking at all the letters and, and the documents that he has sent you. And frankly, look, the reason we do this show is because true crime is one of those things that's just sort of hard to get our heads around, right? We're fascinated because we cannot believe that people do the things they do. Like one of the number one questions in all of these cases we cover is, who does this? Right. Who does this? And I think you've got right there in your hands, uh, you know, some of the answers, you know, as, 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 deep, as deep as we can get. But Laura, will you come back again tomorrow night? It's just such excellent work, just excellent journalism and, and a really great, not only a great series of questions within your letter writing, but also the, the telephone interview. Right. Um, and I don't think you're a serial killer at all. So don't worry if uh, he <laughs> writes you. a letter to you. Thank and you. a quick note, Rex Hewerman is back in court tomorrow yeah. morning and we're going to be there for that too. So we'll let you know what happens. Well, then it's a twofer. We'll have you on uh, for both of these. Laura, thank you for that. So appreciate it. Thank Great you. work. Thank you. Coming up, uh, speaking of serial killers who were all smiles, uh, there was a happy face killer long before Keith Jesperson assumed the role. He was a big fat clown who killed for fun, and he buried the bodies in his basement. John Wayne Gacy was executed decades ago, but tonight he speaks again from the grave. Just cruising around. I would pull up at the light, he nodded to me, I nodded back to him. I pulled over to the side, he got in the car. He was looking for money. I went in the house, and I believe I put the body down in the throat. Up next, the man behind the Gacy tapes and the family connection to the serial killer story. For the happy face killer, there was the clown killer with a twisted smile painted onto his face, almost like the Joker. Name was uh, John Wayne Gacy, and as a member of his local moose club, he had two characters that he liked to portray. 
Pogo the Clown, and Patches the Clown. He made his own costumes. He applied his own makeup. And he did his own killings. Young men, boys mostly, grand total of 33 murders that they could prove. 26 of them were buried in the crawl space under his Chicago area home. But unlike Keith Jesperson, happy face killer, John Wayne Gacy, the clown killer, didn't get life without parole. He got death, and he was executed in 1994, and it took a lethal injection to rid the world of John Wayne Gacy. But tonight he is speaking from the grave, and I want to bring in Bob Mata for this because he hosts a fascinating podcast called The Defense Diaries, featuring hours and hours of John Wayne Gacy's taped jailhouse interviews, taped by... Bob's father, Gacy's trial attorney. So good to have you back, Bob. I look forward to these visits from you. Um, just our shared fascination. It's twisted, I get it. But listen, it's all of us watching right now. And you and me, we're in this, this true crime club. I, I wanted to just quickly get you to set the stage for your first uh, clip that you're going to air. It, it makes me feel like it's another clip where he just loves to blame the victims. And I'm wondering if you think there's similarities between the happy face killer and Gacy when you go through all of those tapes? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, the first clip is uh, actually his last victim, Rob Peast. Uh, he was the young man whose mother came to pick him up and Peace mom and Gacy passed each other like ships in the night as Rob went out, followed Gacy, and was never seen again. So this is once he gets Rob Peast back to his house, describing exactly how that went for Rob Peast. All right, let's roll it. Uh, we were discussing some sex. Well, then I mean, he put the handcuffs on himself. He put the handcuffs on himself. Okay, I, then I, of course, expounded further on him getting blown, and he didn't like the idea. And then he was scared that he was going to get killed. I don't know. He said he wanted to go home, because he thought somebody said he thought that I was going to harm him. So why would you say that? You know, I don't recall exactly what he said. Again, Bob, it's every time I hear him talk, it's as though it's the victim's own fault. There he was getting all scared I was going to kill him. So what's a guy to do? Yeah, that was definitely Gacy's move. Uh, and, you know, you would ask about similarities between Jesperson and, and Gacy. And like many of them, uh, absolute narcissist, smartest guy in the room, him, yeah. Dennis Rader, Gacy, all knew better than everybody in, in every way, shape and form. You were privileged to be in their presence. And, and like you said, I mean, the, the ability of these guys to be able to blend in and Gacy more than any of them in terms of really just ingratiating himself in the public and like inviting people, huge amounts of people to his, his home for these parties, like hundreds of people walking over his graveyard in his house. I mean, the guy was just the apex predator, unlike any that I've ever seen. And he was terrifying in that sense because he was just so capable of doing it. But Gosh. so... <laughs> You, you gave me the chills when you said he invited all these people over to his house and they were walking over this mass grave that was just feet below them. With that as our foundation, set me up for this next, um, this next clip. I think this one is about 19-year-old John Zick. And he, I think he disappeared in 1977. He did. Uh, 
Zick was one of his earlier his earlier victims, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, John Zick's vehicle, which we'll hear about in this clip, was actually driven two years after John Zick was killed uh, by one of Gacy's cronies, a guy named Mike Rossi. So it's a it's a pretty interesting clip. All right, let's roll it. I think that I admit Zick in Chicago and Clark Street or something like that. So, just cruising around. I would pull up at the light. He nodded to me. I nodded back to him. I pull over to the side. He got in the car. He was looking for money and was interested in getting into having some fun. Very simple. The next morning, Rossi and I drove down in my car to and looked for the Plymouth White Plymouth satellite with a banged up front fender, which was parked on Clark Street across from the Newberry Theater. There was a television in the trunk. License plates in the trunk, jewelry, women's clothing, wigs. There was there was stuff in the trunk. I went in the house and I believe I put the body down in the crawl. It's like Bob, every time he says something, it's like he's admitting it without ever really admitting it. He dances close to the line, but then no, but I I'm not a monster. I mean they're all it's so fascinating. You're going to come back again, right? You got a bunch more clips you're going to bring back with, for us? Of course. Absolutely. I love hearing absolutely. that. Absolutely. I love hearing that. I'm going to plug the podcast again. It's called The Defense Diaries. Bob Mata is the host, and these clips are just, just money. Just fantastic. Thank you, Bob. Look forward to our next visit. Thanks for having me. Oh, as always, loved it. All right, still to come, a murder is being planned, and there is a way to predict where and when and even who the victim is going to be. We can even pinpoint who the killer is in advance. But police will do nothing to stop it from happening. That sounds unbelievable, right? In just a couple of minutes, I'm going to tell you why it isn't. Next. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It is the ultimate in crime fighting. Police are notified before a crime happens so that they can catch the criminal in the act, or even before the act happens, or maybe even before that person has thought about committing the act. We've seen it before, but we've seen it in TV shows and movies and books. Now, however, we might actually see it in the real world. Take a look. Solving crimes before they happen. I'll send a protection team as soon as we lock location. It is called pre-crime, and it's a concept made famous by the like 2002 movie Minority Report. In the film and the short story it was based on, psychics tip off authorities about murders before they happen so that police can arrest the would-be murderers before anybody dies. We've got a third party. The film is set in 2054, 30 years from now. But experts say pre-crime predictions are already possible. And we don't need psychics to make them. We just need artificial intelligence. 
AI. Data analysts and social scientists at the University of Chicago say that they've developed an algorithm that can predict future crimes one week in advance. They loaded it with three years worth of data, focusing on violent crimes like homicide and assault, and property crimes like burglary and car theft. Then the algorithm divided the city into tiles, roughly a thousand feet apart, and calculated hotspots based on where the recent crimes happened. A week later, when the team reviewed the actual police blotters, they found that 90% of Chicago's murders, assaults, and thefts had happened in the hotspots selected by the algorithm. They tried the model in seven other cities, and the results were almost identical. But what about catching or even preempting the perps? It turns out the algorithm can help with that too. Chicago police used it to compile a list of people who might one day be involved in a violent crime, either as a victim or a perpetrator. The list was made up of people who spent time in one of the algorithm's hotspots and whose demographics, their age, gender, and race, match criminals and victims of the past. Other AI crime models take it a step further. For years now, judges and parole officers have been using artificial intelligence to calculate an inmate's chance of reoffending. Factors at play in those algorithms include prior convictions, education, and past employment. The model then calculates just how likely that person is to commit another crime and what crime it might be. The ultimate goal, say the promoters of AI-based crime fighting, is to combine these models to pinpoint where a crime might happen, who the victim might be, and which potential suspects were in the area at the time. And on paper, it just seems like a great idea. So why aren't we doing it? Well, it turns out there's a flaw in those models. It's us. It's human beings. Since the algorithms are chewing on data from people, they have the very same blind spots and biases that people have. The crime hotspots that were pinpointed in Chicago and the other cities were mostly black and Latino neighborhoods. The list of potential victims and suspects included 56% of the black men in Chicago, whether they had criminal backgrounds or not. And the algorithms used for parole decisions were far more likely to label white inmates incorrectly as low risk than inmates of color. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a future for pre-crime predictions. Experts say the best way to fix the bad data is with more data. The more information an AI system gets, the more time it gets to learn, and the better it will be at spotting the prejudices and flaws in our own minds. But that could take a while, probably decades. We may even have to wait until 2054. If you like that, stick around, stick with me, friend, because you can also use AI to frame someone for murder. And I've got that all covered in the days ahead. Still to come, though, on this show, the fate of the first parent 
ever charged in the United States with a role in their own child's school shooting. It is still in the hands of the jury. And by the way, in case you were wondering, no, they are not rushing to judgment. Stories next. Parent of a school shooter to be charged in this country for her alleged role in the horrors that her child unleashed on the rest of us. Now, whether she's going to be the first person convicted, that is still up in the air, everybody, because day one of jury deliberations came and went without a verdict on all four counts against her of manslaughter. One count for every one of the students that her son, Ethan Crumbly, killed at the Oxford High School, Michigan, back in 2021, when he was 15. The prosecutors say Jennifer Crumbly was at fault for giving her son a handgun for Christmas, taking him to a shooting range, ignoring the signs that he was in a full mental health crisis, and for refusing to take him out of school on the day of those shootings after she learned in the morning about violent drawings that he'd made that very day. During the deliberations today, six women, six men on the jury came back with two questions. And News Nation correspondent Alex Capriello has that. Ashley, the jury's going to take the night to sleep on it. After about seven hours of deliberations, the judge sent them home. Now, this doesn't necessarily come as a surprise. The prosecution's case wasn't a slam dunk, and the burden of proof that must be met to find the defendant guilty is extremely high. Think about it. Jennifer Crumbly is charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter, which could land her 60 years of prison time if the judge decides to serve those sentences consecutively. And this case is historic. It's the first time that a parent could be held criminally responsible for the actions of their child after opening fire in a school. The jury is looking at everything. Who purchased the gun? What warning signs, if any, were missed? And why Jennifer Crumbly didn't pull Ethan out of school on the morning that teachers discovered him etching disturbing and violent drawings on his math worksheet. Also, one day after, he was caught shopping for bullets on his phone during class. But the question is, does bad parenting really equate to criminal liability? For the jury to find Jennifer Crumbly guilty, they must reach a unanimous decision that she was grossly negligent. If you break it down, it's all about foreseeability. Could Jennifer Crumbly foresee that her son was capable of hurting other students with the gun she and her husband purchased and help teach him how to fire at a nearby gun range? One thing that's clear to me, the jury is taking their responsibility seriously. Twice today, the jury had questions about the evidence that they should be considering and was pulled into the courtroom to clarify their instructions. More specifically, could they infer a level of guilt considering Ethan did not appear as a witness in his mother's trial? Because Ethan is appealing his life conviction, if he did appear, that could lead to a mistrial. The judge told the jury they were only instructed to focus on the evidence presented to them, the exhibits that they saw, and the witnesses that were called to testify over the last week. Jury deliberations will begin tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And as for Dad, James Crumbly's trial, that's still scheduled to begin in March. Keep in mind, it's going to be a completely separate trial, a completely separate jury, and completely separate evidence. So it is wrong to assume that whatever happens to Jennifer is also going to happen to James. Ashley? Thank you, Alex Capriello, for that. And still to come tonight, uh, it really did have all the hallmarks of another Will Smith moment at the Oscars. But this time it was at the Grammys. And this time the LAPD slapped the cuffs on the celebrity tuxedo be damned. Uh, what really happened behind the scenes last night? 
And is it a sign of the times that big time stars are no longer untouchable? Details next. So we do not usually cover showbiz on this program, unless, of course, somebody gets arrested. And wouldn't you know it, somebody did last night at the Grammys. I don't know if you were watching, but when I heard that uh, rap legend Killer Mike was hauled off to the station in cuffs, I had all these visions of, like, Will Smith, right? A moment like, uh, where instead the cops actually did something about it for a change. Let me break down the stuff that's going on right now on your screen. Killer Mike's real name is Michael Render, and he was spotted right there being escorted out of last night's Grammys in handcuffs. And while the details of what actually happened are still a little sketchy, there are a couple things we do know. Um, LAPD says that Mike was booked for a, quote, misdemeanor battery after a, quote, physical altercation at the actual venue. So there's one report that says a security guard may have been the other party involved. And in a text, Killer Mike reportedly blamed, quote, overzealous security. He was released a couple of hours later. All of this happening on the night that he had just won three Grammys, basically sweeping the rap category. So it was like a really good night, until it wasn't a really good night. And of course we flashed back to the Oscars in 2022 when Will Smith did that, hauled off and slapped Chris Rock live on the stage in front of millions of people. But Will Smith was not cuffed. He was not arrested. He wasn't charged. Instead, Will Smith got to go back to his seat and then stay there until called up to the stage to pick up his best actor statue. So did the LA police or maybe the awards producers, did they learn from their mistakes? Or are the officers just more inclined to arrest somebody who has killer in their name? I don't know the answer, but I will say this. It is a good thing that Killer Mike was released today because he needed to be out for his son's much needed operation. Sources say that um, Killer Mike's 21-year-old son received a kidney transplant today after waiting on a list for three years. So it goes without saying that we really do hope everything goes well um, for Killer Mike's son and for the family as they go through this uh, really difficult time. And I'm really curious about the details of whatever it was went on backstage. And I'm really curious if this is now a new trend. Don't go hitting people at an award show because something's going to happen. Thank you for watching tonight. Make sure you stick around. Cuomo's next. everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Monday, we're live, so what do you say? Let's get after it. Question, kind of rhetorical, is the far right going to have to add border patrol agents to the deep state? Why would I ask that? Because the agents union is saying they want the border bill that the House GOP says is dead on arrival, and they want it passed. Why? Something is better than nothing. But that may be true for them, but not if you're a player in the two-party tango. We're doing nothing to fix problems seems to be the goal. So in the absence of federal action, localities are finding their own solutions. In New York City, Mayor Eric Adams is spending $53 million in tax dollars for prepaid meal card.